Now, one of the elements of Catholicism that uh, is commonly known by people outside of uh, their faith uh, but is confusing for folks is uh, some of the, the sacraments of initiation, such as confirmation, uh, things of that nature. Now, you'll be familiar with the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, maybe what your church or your denomination uh, calls it, but uh, it's known as the Eucharist. And it is something that you cannot take uh, in the Catholic faith. You cannot take it unless you have had uh, first your first communion uh, and you are in good standing in your faith, in, in your, your morality, uh, your character, and things of that nature, moving forward from there as Eucharists occur. Now, <clears throat> okay, now anyone, anyone that has been baptized is considered to be in a state of grace, meaning that they are in a sinless situation at that point. Okay, they've been given a cleansing, and, uh, and it is taken very literally in the Catholic faith uh, to the point that uh, it needs to be done uh, once as an atonement of grace, and then you go back for your uh, confessionals, things of that nature, in order to remain pure. Now, one of the things that's a part of the sacrament of initiation that is confusing is <clears throat> what is approved, what isn't approved. When are you in good graces, when you're not in good graces? And this is something from the outside of Catholicism people have a tendency to have an issue with, at least I have in my lifetime, this concern about uh, you need to be in a good grace all the time, but also that no matter what you do, somehow you can go in and just wipe the slate clean and start over again the next day or the next moment or so forth. Um, and this serves also work because even at the last moment of your life, apparently, you can have you know some things done to you and your your sins are removed even if you, you yourself are not actually partaking in the asking for the forgiveness in fact it can be done after death uh, post-mortem your soul can be prayed for and uh, and somehow that's supposed to remove you from these other elements some of that i will get into more detail in this particular video as we get deeper into the different sacraments, we get into the different processes that are going on, and we get to talking about the rosary and uh, mass and so forth, all that. Because all those elements have a great deal of symbolism involved in them, and I'll cover some of that symbolism as well. Now, confirmation is seen as a longer ceremony than a baptism. And uh, it is a long process led by a bishop, typically. And it puts you into what the Catholics refer to as a state of grace. Okay? You are washed clean. Uh, you are in good standing. Now, it is also at this point that the bishop will anoint their head with what is referred to as sacred chrism oil. And uh, it is supposed to be an oil that, that cleanses you. Okay? That's been um, prayed over and made holy not unlike the holy water that in the ceremonies that take place and things of that nature, or the smoke, uh, the incense, and things of that nature. Again, there's nothing that we as humans can do with a human with an, a natural element and uh, in a human environment and make it sacred. But this is something that's believed that can be done under the Catholic faith. That you can pray over water, you can pray over oil. 
and that somehow it makes it holy, or that an object itself is holy because it has been touched by or has been associated with someone that they refer to as a saint. And that goes back again to the communion of, uh, with the dead. Now, one of the things that needs to be understood, and I, I think I clarified this a little bit in the first video, but I want to make sure that's reminded of you in this one, that the indication is that once you've been saved and you die, you are automatically considered part of the saints. Okay, Now, how is that different from people who have been sainted here in, in this world? They've been given a special bonus, but it is understood that everyone becomes a saint upon death that has been saved, okay, that has been through baptism, confirmation, so forth, and died, you know, in good standing with the Lord. And at that point, that saint then can be prayed to. Now, one of the understandings on that is that you're praying to them so that they can then pass it on to the Holy Spirit, or they can pass it on to Christ or the Father. That they're, that they're not the ones performing prayer fulfillments, but that they are somehow, maybe they heard it, you know, Holy Spirit didn't hear it, but they, they heard it, and so they're going to pass it on. So they're going to go run, and they're going to, you know, they're going to pass that prayer request on to those that can. And, uh, and that's, and yes, I'm making fun of it, but that's, it's really not far off from what the doctrine actually says. There is this concept that you can pray to an individual who has lived in this world, that has been a human being in this world, and has now passed on and is in heaven, and the belief is that you pray to them for them to intercede on your behalf or on someone else's behalf with the Lord. And so, yes, you are praying to uh, the, the spirit or the soul or whatever of a dead human being in hopes that if the Lord didn't hear your prayer request, that your dead, your deceased loved one did hear it and can pass it on. And it, it's... It's ridiculous. It, it, it's it's ridiculous because well, for for many reasons. But you don't commune with the dead. There is not a single reference anywhere in Scripture that indicates that when you die, you will continue to be in communication with the people here, left alive, uh, in this mortal structure. It's not there. It, 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 there's nothing in Scripture that indicates that that is what is going to happen, that when you die, you will continue to communicate with those that are left back here. There's not a single reference of anyone who has passed on, who has come back and presented in a dream or in a physical state or anything of that nature, uh, something that indicates um, communication with the living. It just doesn't happen. Angels are the messengers. So if you're not hearing directly from the Holy Spirit, you're hearing from angels, messengers. Um, these are beings that have never been human. Okay, They are not human. They are spirit. And because they are spirit, uh, they are not a part of our, limit, our limits here. 
And, and this is something that over the centuries the Catholic Church, or the Church in a whole, has had issues over this concept of are we fully human, are we fully spirit? Is the spirit and, and the, the, the dirty flesh of human nature connected anyway? And there have been times in history where there has been a solid belief that the soul or the spirit is not physically, you know, it does not come into contact with our body, that somehow our soul is still separated from the body, so that when the body sins, the soul is not tarnished. And then there are others that believe, no, they are intermingled with each other, and that it's okay, because the blood washes over all of it. And, and so that has happened throughout the centuries, throughout denominations and faiths, and there have been churches that have split off, and, and have entire divisions of faith that have, have come into existence because of that issue alone. But nowhere, again, is there a battle that can be fought using Scripture that says that when you or I die, we will continue to have an opportunity to be in communication with those people that are left behind. And you hear people, good people, well-meaning people, talk about how, well, you know, they're, they see you and they're proud of you. No, they don't see you. Okay? They are no longer a part of this realm. They are now a part of their full existence within the presence of the Lord God. They are no longer physical. They are no longer a part of us. Now, that brings sadness to many people because they want to believe that they will they still have this connection with that loved one. Well, eventually they will. And there's arguments and debates over whether when you, when your soul arrives within the presence of God, whether you will recognize those previous souls as family. And, uh, and there are debates about that, that yes, you will, or no, you'll, you'll just know each other through the love of, of our love for the Lord, and, and everyone will be equal and all that. Um, and they use the arguments about how you know there's no sadness in heaven, so therefore there can't be any bad memories, and da 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 and there's all that. And I'm not going to try and get into all of that, because to be quite honest, we don't know. And people can argue what they want to argue with that, but we don't know. Now, and again, Scripture doesn't tell us that either. Scripture doesn't say that when you get to heaven, you're going to be reacquainted with that person. In fact, it was specifically said, it was questioned of Jesus this person is married several times. When they get to heaven, whose wife will they be? They were trying to frame that exact same question. Okay? And Christ avoids that as far as is referring to that in a direct nature. He does not answer it in the way they want it answered. Uh, that is not something that we are to be focused on. Okay? The relationships that we have with people uh, while we're flesh and blood are beautiful or hurtful, and usually both, but they are limited relationships. The only eternal relationship we have is with God. Now, we may commune with each other as mutual souls embraced in the warmth of, of God, uh, but there is to be nothing that would detract our love from the Lord. And the thought that we are looking forward to or we're cherishing the opportunity to spend time with the spiritual version of the flesh and blood people that we loved here, that would be a detraction from our love and worship of God. 
I mean, it makes sense, right? In order for heaven to be perfect, the union needs to be perfect between you and God. And you have to admit, one of the largest problems that we have in this mortal existence is that we get distracted. We get pulled in by our affections for other human beings, and it detracts our focus on the Lord. Why, why, would, why would God create a heaven sphere that would give people the same opportunity to be distracted away from our presence with Him? Now, there are those who would say, well, nothing could distract that. Well, if that's the case, then why do you need to have the reunion with the people in the first place? You see? It, the argument is already made. If your goal in heaven is to see the loved ones that you've lost, your goal for heaven is wrong. But that's not the way it works anyway. Now, if once we get to heaven, we're not having that relationship, why in the world would we have that relationship with them as flesh and blood now and while they're spirit? Why would that be a connection that we would have today in this environment? It isn't. Okay? But it is a deception. It is an attempt to remove us from focusing on God in our prayers and focusing on God in our, our, our plans and goals and our intentions for our, the afterlife and focusing it in again on man. Okay? And it goes back to the, the events of people performing exorcisms or performing uh, seances and things of that nature, all things that fall under the Catholic umbrella. And it is an attempt to communicate again with our lost loved ones or to get rid of a demon in our own life. Now, the exorcisms today are not what I'm talking about as far as first century exorcisms. Okay? That's a whole other thing. The things today are really just a version of a seance. Because it is focused in on, the again, the, the make-believe concepts of holy water and, and rituals and rosaries and all that that we're going to talk about later. And it's all these ritualistic things that happens here in an attempt to commune with something that is either one, dead, that was once alive, or was never flesh and blood, but was just demonic. You have to understand that a seance is conjuring up a demon, not your dead loved one. And an exorcism is an attempt to remove a demon from your life or from the life of a loved one. It's very dangerous. But I'll save the details to that for another time. Now, part of what happens with the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, for those of you that are not a part of the Catholic faith, but you have taken part in the Lord's Supper, there are churches, there are denominations that, uh, that will not let an individual take the Lord's Supper unless they have been baptized already or they're a member of the church and there are rules that they create for that. And that has, has its reasons behind it and I can see where people would want to make sure that you, you have, uh, you've been cleansed at one point of your sins, that you've come to the Lord at least you know, in, in a form of baptism. And I get all of that. Now with Catholicism though, it throws it into a totally different realm. 
a realm that is still believed by some outside of Catholicism, but it's predominantly a, a Catholic uh, center when we start talking about uh, the details of, a, of the Eucharist. Now, for those of you that do not know what a Eucharist or a Lord's Supper is, it is a, a reenacting of the last meal that Jesus had with his disciples prior to his being taken and crucified. And uh, in that meal, he broke bread and uh, he took wine and he indicated that the bread was his body. Eat of me, you know, because I'm about to be sacrificed. Um, remember me really is what it was referring to is I you know when when as you break this bread remember that my body is about to be broken okay and then it's being broken for you um, drink this wine and let it represent my blood which is about to be shed for you and uh, and it was it was this he was trying to explain one last time to his disciples what is about to happen and he was taking an event that was originally intended to be, and it was traditionally seen as being a Passover meal, referring back to Exodus, but instead he turned it into a different thing. He was talking about this is not a people being saved from captivity physically here and being given a promised land. This is about you being saved spiritually and being given eternal life. And so that last meal he had with him was a Passover in its own way, but it was a unique experience as well. Now, whether they understood that at the time, the odds are they were human. They didn't. They didn't really understand it. There's much of his ministry over those three years they did not understand at the time. It took years, decades, and for them to figure out, in, in some cases, everything that he was referring to. And we're still trying to understand what some of these things really mean for us. And so that night when they had that last supper it was it was a simple supper it was it was unleavened bread being broken and passed and being shared at the meal it was wine um, that was probably strong and, and, and more fermented than anything um, and it was spread to those others around the table and and again they were being reminded of what was about to happen to him and why it was happening and that it was for their benefit. Okay, That's the original meaning of the Last Supper. It is now referred to as the Lord's Supper because in churches, um, non-Catholic churches, they will go in and, and they will have some kind of a wafer cracker or something of that nature and they will have usually grape juice, sometimes wine, that will be passed out to the congregation and those that have uh, been saved, that have been baptized, that have been, you know, made public confessions of faith in the Lord, partake in that, and they are to remember that event. And it is, it is a, it is a beautiful moment. It is meant to be a remembering moment, and so forth. And it can be done on a regular basis. Some churches do it annually. Some do it quarterly. Some do it every week. Uh, it just depends. But. It is not intended to be literal, unlike the Catholic faith, where we are talking about a literal transformation here. The belief is, and it's not always been this way, it was symbolic really for the first three or four centuries of, of Christianity, and then it began to be looked at as literal. That when you take the bread in, you, it, it, that even though its physical presence remains the same, it will become the body of Christ. 
that you are consuming his body. And that when you drink the wine, or the grape juice, that, it, that even though it will look and smell and taste identical to what it was a moment ago, that when you take it in, that it will actually be the blood of Christ. And that belief is supposed to mean that this is a highly, highly sacred moment. It means that Christ is, in some ways, physically there with you at the moment of that Eucharist. Because you're you're eating of his blood and you're drink I mean you're eating of his body and you're drinking of his blood. There's debate even within the Catholic Church over whether that is literal or not. <clears throat> and again, there's been separations and creation of additional church denominations, things of that nature, over such issues. Um, here's the part that's difficult. And, and I, I want to say this now, and I probably should have mentioned this in the first part. One of the strongest things that bothers me about Catholicism, and for that matter, 21st century Christianity in general, is that it it has accepted, down through the centuries, it has accepted back into its fold so many pagan rituals from the first century, prior to the first century, and, and growing since then. It has reincorporated all of these secular pagan rituals. And it creates this concept of there are conditions in which Certain things are okay to do if it's done for the church. And, and here's where I ask my Catholic friends to, to ask yourself seriously this question. Are you okay with hearing of someone who is a cannibal? When you hear of cannibalism, when you hear stories uh, of uh, people eating children or eating other people or whatever, and you're, you're sickened by it. It's like that is evil. That's demonic. That's wrong. Okay. Can you please explain to yourself? Because I already understand for me, but can you explain for yourself why it disgusts you if it's referred to as cannibalism and it's on children, but you partake in something in a church environment and you're told that it is the flesh and it is the blood? And you consume it. Not symbolically, but literally. How is that different? Why should you view that as differently? Now see, I personally see it purely as symbolism. That's all it is. It's symbolism. But for those of you that are in the Catholic faith, or outside of the Catholic faith, but have a church that, that teaches you, that claims that it does transform into flesh and blood. Explain how that is different, why that should be seen as different than cannibalism. I move on. Now, before you take the Eucharist, 
there is a, there is a prayer, prayer of atonement. There's a communion service that takes place prior to all of this to make sure that your soul is there and that you've been absolved of all of your sins prior to doing this. Because, again, you're taking of the body and blood of the Savior. Right? So, there's a ritual before the ritual to make sure that you're prepared for the ritual so that the ritual will take place appropriately. Now, again, for those that believe that when you're taking the Eucharist, you're literally taking the, the um, transubstantiation okay, process, meaning that you are consuming of him in reality, that automatically implies that he is physically there, as I said a moment ago, which also means that it is considered to be possibly the most sacred moment that you can have as a Catholic in a ceremony. It is a guaranteed moment that Christ is there with you. Which also implies that Christ isn't necessarily with you all of the time. That he comes and goes. That he leaves you. And that uh, you, have to, uh, you have to go do these rituals in order for to, to get his presence again. Now, again, my Catholic friends... How is that different than Judaism with this belief that the Lord comes and goes, only comes to certain people under certain conditions, that you have to go into the temple and stand on this side of the veil and you have to pray to the Lord and the Lord gives the message to those that are qualified and holy enough to receive it and then they come and give the message to everyone else. That is ancient temple worship from Judaism and pre-Judaism and thousands of world religions. How is that different than being told that the Lord is not with you at all times? That He comes and goes, that you have to go in under a certain holy state and to a certain place, perform a certain set of rituals or events or activities or prayers in order for you to receive a connection with the Lord. I mean, did not Christ leave the Holy Spirit here at Pentecost? Did he not say the Holy Spirit is going to stay here with you? That was the replacement of all the rest of that. It replaced the temple, it replaced the rituals, it replaced the need for the, the priests going in and atoning for you with the Lord in a sacred environment under a holy condition and la da 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 da. You had direct connection consistently with the Holy Spirit from then on. The Holy Spirit was left here. Up until that point, up until Pentecost, the Holy Spirit would come and go in people's lives. But nobody living today that has given themselves to the Lord and has truly asked for forgiveness and sought His salvation and has received it lives without the Spirit. It, it, it's, it's here. At any moment, day or night, any time, you can communicate with God. You have a direct line. You no longer wait for moments of that to happen. Now, what that also means is that you are no longer separated and lost in this world. You no longer have the emptiness is no longer there. 
And now, it doesn't mean that you don't get depressed. It doesn't mean that you don't get shaken. But that, that's because there are things in this world, this world that is still being ruled by Satan. Okay, it's still his dominion. And so you will still have pressures. You will still have worldly things that will happen, but it's not spiritual. But you don't have darkness that you cannot seek out the Lord. He is there. You can still communicate with Him. You can still pray with Him. He can still give you that energy, that, that spiritual renewal that you need at any given moment. He is here. And you don't have to go into a building or perform a set of rituals or see a certain person or be in a particular state in order for that to happen. The Holy Spirit can communicate with you, you to God. That's the reason it's here. It's the reason Christ left it here. Left it among us. So you don't have those dark spaces, not only in your life, but throughout history, where the Lord is not with us. See, He's never once left us again to our own devices. Now, now, we can walk away from the Spirit. That's different. We can turn our backs on what we hear from the Spirit, what we feel from the Spirit. We can turn that away. And it can certainly be turned away. We can be misled. Not anything different than Adam and Eve being misled that, oh, well, but, you know, this tree won't kill you. It'll actually just make you like God. You can be misled. That's, that's a whole different story. But this ritual, again, is no different than the temple rituals of Judaism or the other pagan religions that are out there, okay, the ancient temple worships. And I wish that I could say that again stronger in a way that would make the light bulb come on for everybody and that alone should be able to turn people away from all these rituals that they do including those that take part in the non-catholic christian environment it still happens there are still those rituals there's still the beliefs that if you don't have a public baptism you're, you're not saved that if you don't go up and you know profess your your salvation before the church body, that somehow it's not real, that if you don't attend church on a regular basis, that somehow you're, you're lost and backslidden, that uh, you know, all these things. Okay, those are all rituals. You don't need to go talk to your pastor in order to communicate with God. You don't need to go talk to a priest in order to communicate your sins to the Lord. You don't need a priest to bless you. You don't need water poured on you or oil poured on you so that you can be renewed. Um, all of that has been replaced by Christ. He removed the need for all of that a long time ago. Okay, now part of the whole communion is that you've got to fast from food and drink, you know, at least one hour prior to. Um, and there's a part of me that wants to make a joke about, you know, don't go in swimming uh, an hour after you've been, you know, through communion. It, it just, it's, and I'm not meaning, I'm really not meaning to be sacrilegious, and I, I want people to understand, I am not, I'm not talking down about Catholicism purely for the sake of talking about, down about Catholicism. It is, it's got a series of issues with it. It is so far removed from what Christ intended and what the disciples created as, as far as forming the original church, uh, it is not, okay, it is not your Savior's church. 
Now, you have to understand, Christ did not come um, with this, this plan to create the church. He, he came to a very small group in a very limited area, and he taught and trained a small group of men. He, he influenced you know, a few thousand uh, men and women, but it was very specific. He wanted to, to personally disciple a handful of men, 12 men, and hand it off to them. And they then began to build the church and, and spread the word, and, and they did you know, everything that is known as the Great Commission. You know, first to your local area, then to the outer areas, and then to the whole known world. And as a result of all of that, we have to remember that people keep talking about how you know Christ built the church, and this is what Christ wanted the church to be, and so forth. He gave the men the instruction on how to live. They were to pass that information on and to build individual disciples who would build disciples, who would build disciples, and so forth, and spread the word out that way. It was never intended to be a return to the temple. Christ came to get rid of the temple. <laughs> I mean, you have, you have to remember, the scripture itself even indicates that when he died on the cross, the veil was split in the temple. The temple was ridden unnecessary. There was no longer a barrier between God and man, both physically with the temple as well as spiritually. That was the time. That was when it was done, okay? The temple was done away with. It was destroyed for that reason. There was never supposed to be another wall there. And Catholicism has brought it back with confession, with rituals, with priests, with the whole chain of things that goes on. And they, all they did is they restored the temple. But they restored it under a Roman environment with Jewish members and Roman or Gentiles who wanted to throw it all together and to create all of this back uh, into one big soup. And you see that in these things such as the communion. Now, also in the communion, there are, there are of course, there are items. You, you no longer, you can't just have bread that you're breaking. Apparently, that's not good enough. In Catholicism, you've got to have the actual little circular, oh, well, here I am, making my statement, you've got to have your circular um, wafer, which is not referred to as a wafer, by the way, it's referred to as a host. Okay, now host comes from the Latin word hostia, meaning sacrificial victim. Okay, so the host is supposed to represent the victim being sacrificed, meaning Christ. But <laughs> why not just call it the bread? Why not just make it the bread? Why did Catholicism feel it was necessary to change the terminology from bread and breaking bread to the host. Why? It's really very simple. Because they intentionally wanted to make it 
a sacrificial something. They wanted to make it something that was the worship of a sacrifice. They wanted to return it back to the temple days again. They wanted it to be that. They always intended it to be that. Again, if you're Catholic and you're going through the events in the Catholic Church, all you're doing is doing a Romanized version of the Jewish rituals that were replaced by Christ when he died on the cross. Okay, now I love this one. There is actually something that's referred to as the RCIA, the Rite of Christian Initiation for Adults. Okay, and I'm gonna, I've got to read it. It actually says that if you're an adult who is unbaptized, baptized but not catechized, or a baptized non-Catholic Christian looking to make the move to the faith, then you need to check out the Rite of Christian Initiation for Adults, the RCIA. Okay, this is the spot for immersion conversion. That's literally the term that they use. Okay, and here's how it works. The, uh, the initiant meets with a priest in the church, okay, to talk about their options, how they can get involved in all of this, okay? Then they go through a process of, of meets and things of that nature, okay? And I got to read it because it's just so amazing. You have to profess your intention during a Mass. We'll talk about that in detail later. Um, you have to be accepted into the order, okay, during the rite of acceptance, denoting the beginning, the beginning of your uh, catechism, okay? And it is typically at least one full year, but can be longer or shorter depending on the individual circumstances. You know, if you know how to, you know, if you know somebody, you know, you might be able to speed the process up a little bit. Or, you know, if you're not quite as dedicated as Joe over here was, it might take you a little longer. Okay? You're not quite ready yet. <sighs> but it's a period referred to as the faith formation period. Now, when the individual, the priest, and the parish team all feel that you've been ready to be installed, they express a desire to receive the sacraments. Okay, this begins the third stage known as the period of purification and enlightenment. Okay, it coincides, of course it has to coincide with something, with the first Sunday of Lent and is called the rite of election. Okay? got to do it under rituals. It's got to happen at a certain time, in a certain place. It's got to be met by a committee, and all these people have to accept this because apparently there are specific people on this earth that have probably been sprinkled with some water that somebody prayed over, and they claim that it's holy. But they've been told okay, that, um, if, that they can make the decision on whether you have actually come to know the Lord. They somehow know your soul maybe even better than you do. So they can actually tell you, no, you're not ready. You're not there. You're not there. You're not there. I just don't feel it. it it's, no, it's not time. There was a minister many years ago, Dr. Gene Scott, who would come on at late night hours, and I mean like 11, 12, 1 a.m. in the morning on, uh, on public television, and uh, he was out in California, and he had a, a huge neon sign outside of his place that said, Jesus saves, and it would, eh, 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 you know, that kind of thing. And it, But he would come on late at night, had this scruffy-looking beard and hair and all this kind of stuff, and he would sit back in his chair, 
and he would run footage of him riding his horse or whatever, and every once in a while he'd get up and he would just fill a blackboard with all kinds of gibberish, of all kinds of, of stuff, and he'd preach for like two hours. Um, and then there are other times when he just didn't. He didn't feel like there was enough offering coming in. There wasn't enough support coming in. So he would sit back in his chair and he would still run this program, but he would run footage of him literally riding his horse in his um, arena until he felt enough money had come in for the night. And then he would, uh, he would then preach or he would prophesy on something or he, he would do something. Not haven't seen enough money, run the footage again. Catholic Church is that same kind of hypocrisy. The structure, and again, I am not talking about the individual members of the Catholic Church. I am talking about the structure of the church. The priesthood, the bishopric, the papacy, the whole blasted system. It's just a hierarchy of priests, of people who have made themselves more worthy than they ever could be, and telling you whether you have a relationship with the Almighty God or not. And if they don't feel that you're ready for it, roll the footage again. Keep doing it. Now, after they've, re you know, they've, they've been received into the faith, the new members spend the next 40 days reflecting on their experiences. Okay? They spend 40 days literally reflecting on their experiences and the, the, the study, the mysteries of the Catholic faith. Now, I want to take this moment to talk about that term alone, the mysteries of the Catholic faith. There should be no mystery to your relationship with God. Christ did not teach the disciples and have the disciples teach others so that there would be confusion and so that there would be mystery. Our God is not a God of confusion. There shouldn't be mysteries. But you know what there are mysteries in? Cults. There's a reason why in the first century when Christ was born and during the environment in which he experienced his passion, Rome and the world at large was, was filled with mystery religions, meaning religions that you didn't understand, that were secretive, that you had to have special initiations for, that you had to go into back rooms and perform secret events and take part in all this stuff because it was secret. You didn't know the details of all of it. Okay, those are mystery religions. And they were sacrificial, they were satanic, they were evil in every way imaginable and perverted in every way possible. And they included Jew and non-Jew in the process. And for the Catholic faith to say that once you've been accepted in as an adult that you were supposed to take 40 days to look at the mysteries of the Catholic faith, that should send up a huge flag. But the reason it doesn't is because you're not taught what I just said. No one's taught what the world was like in the first century of Christianity. 
Nobody talks about it. Nobody mentions it. Nobody mentions the flaws in the systems. Nobody talks about the fact that you shouldn't be doing rituals or sacrifices or there shouldn't be secret unions. And, and when people talk about how they've got a, a, a Christian faith, like a Masonic something that requires you to go in and you have special rings and you go in and you have to have this, these, these personal moments and you can't share the details of what happens in it, that is wrong. That is wrong. You can have a club. Okay, people, you know, as a kid, that makes sense. You know, we're going to have a secret society. And you don't think anything about it as a child. Okay, we're going to keep secrets with each other. But you don't take it as spiritual. You don't take it as eternal. We're talking about something that's supposed to be affecting your eternal soul. That's going to determine where your soul spends eternity. And you're getting messed in something that requires you to have secrets that have to be unveiled things that you have to keep from friends and family. It's wrong. Plain and simple, it's wrong. Now what adds on top of that is, like I touched on in Judaism, is this concept that there are some priests that have information that the other members don't have and will never have. Mm-mm. No. There's nothing from God in that. Okay, now I will also say this at the same time for those of you that are going, well, you know, the ministers on TV talk about how, you know, we've got all the power we need. And, you know, see, that's blasphemy as well. The Lord also never said, in fact, He said just the opposite, quite contrary, that, that your life will always be beautiful. No, He said you will have struggles in this world. You will have pains. You will have dark moments. You will always have the poor with you. You will always have struggles. All of that is very present throughout the New Testament. It's very clear that you're going to have times of suffering. And any minister or ministry or doctrine that tells you otherwise is lying to you. You're going to have pain. You're going to have loss. You're going to face evil. You're going to face setbacks. The only thing you're promised is that the Lord will be with you through it all, and that if, as long as you continue to hold your faith to Him, He'll get you through it. Okay, now I move into the sacraments of penance or healing. Okay, these are referred to as the sacraments of healing, where you have uh, the penance and reconciliation, also referred to by most people, known by most people as confession. And I introduced it earlier, but I'm going to go into more details with it. It literally is, and I want to read this because it's important that you hear it directly. It says, though the term conjures images of foreboding phone booths in which Catholics bear their souls to a priest in the hope that he will forgive them of their sins and dote out an appropriate punishment for their deeds, the reality is not quite so archaic. That's another lie, too. There are requirements within what I'm going to refer to as confession. Now, penance, for those of you that don't know the old term, penance was where you would go in and you would go talk to a priest and you would have to perform some works in order to work off the sin that you had committed. 
Now, the claim today in the Catholic Church is that it's no longer really referred to as that, but you don't have that anymore. Um, you don't do labor to, to, to work off sins and, and all that. You don't have that kind of penance anymore. Um, yeah, it's not really true. Okay, now, you have to remember that their belief is that somehow the priests have the ability to forgive you of your sins and then dole out the punishment for them. Again, this concept that they understand your relationship with the Lord better than you do. Okay? Uh, the disciples were given the Holy Spirit and they were given the power to perform miracles that Christ were, was given. But Scripture does not say that they were given the power to pass that on to the next generation and that that generation had the power to give it to the next generation and so forth. Scripture does not say that you will continue to further this out so that there's always a living generation that can forgive sins, that can heal okay, the physically ill or the mentally ill, um, or that can resurrect bodies. Okay? Christ did that, and there's reference in Scripture of the disciples doing that. But it does not indicate that that was a sweeping motion that was continued on through the next generation and so forth throughout the centuries. And that's a common misunderstanding with people, whether they're in Catholicism or out of Catholicism, that there are people here that can somehow lay their hands on you and they can heal you. Okay? Nobody, no human being on the earth today performs healing miracles. Now, there is healing through prayer. God can heal you physically, emotionally, mentally. But there is nothing scriptural that says that the disciples made their own disciples and passed that on to them and so forth, and it continues to ripple on throughout history. No indication of that. Okay? Resurrections. Uh, all those kind of things. A, a human being be able to stand over you, put their hand on you, and, and you receive purification. No. Okay? You can't touch the hem of a priest's skirt and be healed. Doesn't work that way. But that's a part of the penance. Now, what happens is you go into confession, you give confession, and then you are told, well, now you need to do so many rosary events. And, uh, yeah, we're going to touch off on rosary here in a moment. Um, there's a lot of details in that, and there's a lot of ritualism to that, and there's a lot of symbolism in all of that, and, and we'll touch off on that in just a moment. Now, <clears throat> again, I'm reading statements here. It says that uh, Catholics who have reached the age of reason are obligated to confess their sins. Okay, You reach an age of, of accountability, and you are expected to, you know, to confess your sins. Now, those outside of the Catholic Church 
that know the Lord and have him as, his, as their Savior can go directly to the Lord in prayer and ask for forgiveness. And nobody else has to be involved in it. But there's this, this concept that, well, but if you go to a human being and you confess them out loud to another human being, there's real contrition that takes place there. There's a real healing that takes place. That it's not actually talking to the priest that does it, but it's, it's the communicating out loud to someone that makes it different. But it can't be just anyone. Okay? They may receive the sacrament of recon reconciliation anytime a priest is available. But they are expected to confess serious sins versus little minor ones. There's mortal and non-mortal. Okay? But to confess serious sins at least once a year and are strongly encouraged to take advantage of this sacrament during the Lent in Lenten, uh, I mean the Advent in Lenten seasons, or before receiving another sacrament, such as confirmation, Eucharist, matrimony, or the Holy Order, which is when you become a priest or a member of the ministry team. So, <laughs> here's the details to this. There are three things that Catholics have to do in order to make a good confession. Okay, You can't just confess. You've got to do these three things in order for it to be considered A-OK -okay approved. You must tell all of your sins. Okay, You've got to clear them out. Okay, The priest has to hear every dirty detail of everything that you've done. All of them, Frank. Three. All of them, Frank. Five. All of them, Frank. You have to be truly sorry. Hello, that one's kind of a self-given. I get that one, okay? But you must have a firm intention not to sin again. So, you can't just go to the Lord directly and say, I really messed up. Father, forgive me for this. You have to say it out loud to another human being. You have to confess it all in its details. Okay, now it doesn't say details, but it says you have to confess all of your sins. So you got to pull them all out, whatever it is that you've done. Okay, and sins could be, you know, forgive me, Father, for, you know, I, I had an impure thought. You know, and you have all these specifics that you go into, okay? So it's, it can be a long confessional, okay? If you're going into every little thing that you could possibly have done that might have been construed as possibly sinful, minor or major. You have to be sorry, which really is the part that really is necessary, but that's not to another human being. You don't tell another human being you're sorry. That's, that's a heart thing. Nobody's going to know. I mean, the priest can't look at you and go, yeah, you confessed everything, but I don't think you really are sorry. It's not up to the priest to determine that. That's why it's supposed to be between you and God. And that you have to have a firm intention not to sin again. Well, that part makes sense. You know, you don't... You don't decide that you're about to go out and you're about to, you know, have, you know, an affair with somebody and you decide you're going to drop off into the church and confess your sins up until that moment and then you're going to go, you know, have an affair right after you leave there. Right. You do need to have a clean heart. Then that makes sense. But again, there's nothing that says it needs to be told to another human being. Okay. That's not scriptural either. You're confessing to the Lord. Now, there are those that would say, the scripture does clearly indicate it, and I'm sure I'm going to get DMs of people that are going to indicate that it's, it's there. Um, no, it does not say that you have to go to a priest and have a confession. Not New Testament. 
The atonement for sin isn't done through a human being. Now, on top of everything else, you've got to have a reconciliation that has steps, because if it didn't have steps, it wouldn't be Catholic. It wouldn't be a ritual. Steps to making the sacrament of reconciliation. Okay, these things have to happen. Okay, the priest may begin with some kind of a short blessing or, or a scripture reading, okay, which is usually a pre-arranged scripture. Uh, then you have to begin by saying, Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. It has been however long, okay, since my last confession. Then you confess the sins that you've identified, and then you end by expressing sorrow, okay, I'm truly sorry, um, asking also that you might be forgiven. You have to listen as the priest offers you counsel as well as a penance for your confession, and we'll touch that in details here in a moment, and say an act of contrition, expressing your sorrow and bow your head while the priest offers you absolution in Jesus' name. Now, there is a very specific act of contrition involved in this as well, which is this. Oh my God, I am heartily sorry for having offended thee, and I detest all of my sins because of thy just punishments, but most of all because they offend thee, my God, who are all good and deserving of all my love. I firmly resolve with the help of thy grace to sin no more and to avoid the near occasion of sin. Amen. I'm going to choose this moment to throw in what you're going to see repeated throughout the rest of this, this concept of repetitive statements. Now again, this is a set statement that you say, that you memorize, that becomes a part of your ritual. You don't communicate with God fresh out of your mind. You don't speak something that's out of your heart. You speak something that's memorized. See, man creates structured lists, structured statements, things that have to be said in a certain way, in a certain in a manner. That's man. That's ritual. That's, that's cult. Everybody does exactly the same thing for the same reasons, at the same time, in the same way. That's ritual. That's also religion. If you go work out in a regular pattern, doing regular things, you're doing it religiously. If you go to confession, you have to state a certain statement a, a order in which things happen, and you have to state a act of contrition, which means you have to say a particular statement. Otherwise, apparently, you're not you don't get forgiven. Right? Now, a Catholic priest would tell you, no, well, that's not really necessarily true. It's just it's, it's just the way that we do it. Okay, well, you don't have to do it that way. Can an individual do it some other way? Yeah, but this is the way we do it. No, but can they do it on their own? Well, but this is the way we do it. It, it may not be necessarily sanctioned by the church. Oh, so the church rules say that you have to do it, not God. Oh, and I don't remember finding that in Scripture anywhere, so it's not God's Word that says it either. So this is just something that man came up with. Like an oath of allegiance. Right? Right? or reading the Miranda Act. 
right, to someone when they're being arrested. If it's not read exactly right, it gets thrown out of court. It has to be said a certain way. It has to be done a certain way. Why? Because it's a ritual. It's an initiation. It is uh, not from the heart. Ask yourself why you get frustrated hearing the same things from people that hurt you. Ask yourself why you get tired of hearing, well, I'm sorry, or I didn't mean to do it, or I forgot. Next time I'll remember. When you hear somebody repeat those phrases, it becomes less and less effective each time that they say it to you, and it wounds you deeper in some ways when they even attempt to use the phrase. If it's that way in your relationship with another human being, why would it not be that way in a relationship with God where you're doing nothing but repeating the exact same statements each and every time? You're not having a conversation with God. You're not having a conversation with God at all, in any way. You're having a conversation with another human being who's doing the same thing you're doing. They're just going through a pattern. They're answering a series of things. Well, this is what I say, then they say that, and then I say this, and then we you know, sprinkle some stuff, give them a wafer, and we move on. There's nothing sacred about this except the name sacrament. Now, the sacrament of anointing the sick, okay? This one right here, real quick and easy to cover this one, um, it's just ridiculous. Somebody is sick, you pour some, some oil on them to, to soothe them, and that's all it does. That's all it is. All you're doing is giving somebody something that is physically therapeutic. That's all it is. It has no spiritual ramification whatsoever. Now, we feel morally better for having done it, and when you, you have been given this, this rub down of this oil and it smells good, and you feel better in, in, in the same sense that uh, it, it just is pleasant but it has no spiritual qualities to it whatsoever. None. Anointing the sick doesn't heal them. Sacraments of the dying, <clears throat> also referred to in some ways as the last rites, things of that nature. Uh, there is also what's called the uh, viaticum, um, or Eucharist, as viaticum. This is the food for the journey. And it is the concept that you can give a last Eucharist to someone uh, on their deathbed and that it has prepared their soul for eternity to be received. They don't even have to be consciously aware of what's happening. You're doing it on their behalf, which is no different at the end of their life than it is at the beginning of their life with baptism. Infant baptism and last rites or the sacra sacraments of the dying kind of serve the same thing. On neither end does the person have to be aware of what's going on or accept what is going on, but some other figure out there is doing this event that supposedly is preparing your soul for something better. Now, the sacraments of service deal with the holy order, deals with your actual vocation within the Catholic Church. And there is there's some craziness to all of this. There are different levels, different paths, all this. And to be quite honest, I could throw a whole chart out there, but, uh, but if you're a Catholic, you already know all these different things. You know the, you know the deacons and the priests and the 
you know, the bishops, there's the papacy, and you know, all these different orders. And there's a particular order for all of this. There's a particular sacrament that takes place to go through each of these stages and, and different meanings and all this. Um, now, the, the ministry that Jesus established is actually in direct contrast to the priesthood of the Old Testament. <clears throat> and what gets me is that the Catholic Church agrees with this. They know this. They say that the, the institution that Jesus did of leadership was the opposite of the Old Testament priesthood. That instead of it giving the priest the power, it was supposed to be returning the power back to God. Okay? They say that. I mean, that's their written statement for it, is that it is a returning of power to God, not to man. That the priests are not in charge. And then they turn around and they create the deacons, okay, the priests, the bishops, the pope, who all have different levels of power or control. <clears throat> now, sacraments of holy order are only given to men. This part is biblical. This part is found in Scripture. Okay? Not the holy order, but that men were priests. Men were the leaders. Okay? Men were the, uh, the ministers in the faith. Now, the Catholic Church says the reason that they hold to only men as priests is because uh, that is what Jesus did. He only had male disciples, and therefore male apostles. And so, therefore, only men can be priests. Ironically enough, though, apparently, you can saint and you can pray to women, alive and dead, in the Catholic faith, and they hold a very high structure. But they can't be priests. But they can be prayed to. Okay. Now, I'm not going to go into all the details of, you know, what all is required for a deacon versus a priest or a bishop and a pope and all that. There's no real need to go into those details because, quite honestly, the whole structure is crazy. Um, and, and for those of you that are not Catholic, it's not really any crazier, I guess, than you having elders in your church or you're having your, your, your different levels of, of, of uh, bishops and archbishops and, and the, the priests and the, you know, the associate pastors versus the pastor. And there's levels of hierarchy. And I get the fact that a church uh, today in the 21st century is typically a large body. And because of that, it requires multiple people in order to take care and service the church physically itself, as well as the membership within a church. All of that happens. Okay, A, a, a pastor with associate pastors that, that, that take care of certain elements of the church, I understand that structure is there. I don't have a problem with people holding different job titles within a church. <clears throat> the problem with the Catholicism version of this, with your, your deacons and priests and bishops and popes and all this stuff is that 
there is a hierarchy of answering to all of this and a belief that the higher up in the structure you get, the more blessed somehow you are and the more holy somehow that you are, uh, which is not, I mean, there's, it's not scriptural, except in reference to Old Testament temple worship, okay, or pagan rituals. Again, Christ came to replace the need for priesthood. Okay, he replaced all of that. He replaced the need for there to be hierarchy of structure. The structure was supposed to go back to God. Okay, you answer to God. You don't answer to another human being about your faith, about your commitment, about your ministries and things of that nature. Uh, but that is a misunderstanding. Uh, but I could go into the whole concepts that you know there's you've got to take certain classes in order to be a part of things. If you're going to become a deacon, uh, you have to go through schooling. Okay, that's not unlike the fact that I am a licensed minister and therefore I had to go through schooling in order to go in through that whole process. Okay, I have a, both a bachelor's and master's in ministry-related fields. Pastoral ministry in my bachelor's, theology and biblical languages in my master's. And so I've been through that process too. I'm not trying to be a hypocrite, okay, but I'm a hypocrite when it comes to that in, in the same way because... I've been through all that structure. Now, did I believe I needed to go through all those things in order to become somehow spiritually sound? No, I knew I needed them in order to uh, to work within a church environment because it was required in a church environment, not unlike you going through and getting a medical degree so that you can be a doctor and get all of that. Okay, I understand all of that. It doesn't make me any more or less holier than any other human being by going through that process. It just means that I've studied more than some others have. But there's a process of this. Now, I do find it interesting that within the Catholic faith, there is a, a two- to four-year process of you going through philosophy classes where there's only a three- or more-year time of theology. And you kind of take that into, into place. The Catholic Church knows that in order for you to really work within the Catholic environment, you don't just need theology. You've got to have philosophy as a part of it. Now, why would you need philosophy? Well, philosophy is the concept of thinking of things in a worldly manner. It is a worldview. It's, it's looking at the multiple worldviews that are out there, and these concepts, both spiritual and non-spiritual. And the irony is that you spend all of that time focusing in on how to learn how the world works so that you can then claim to be not of the world. Here's my take on all of that. Really what it does is it prepares you for knowing how the world works, for taking in the world's pagan rituals, and accepting the pagan beliefs into your worship structure, and then passing that on. Philosophy also allows you the ability to manipulate other people, and it allows you to manipulate them with a clear conscience. Now, this is the part where I have to say anyone who goes into the actual priesthood, you are, you are taken into the inner workings of, you're not just initiated into a system, you're taken into the upper levels, the upper echelons of the cult. You are introduced to each level, a new darker level of what really goes on in the structure as a whole. 
And when you get to the papacy, you're at the top of that structure. Now, under the cult idea, the cult concept, you're at level 33 in Freemasonry. Just as an example. You're at the top. And what you know at that level isn't known at the levels below you. You hear rumors, but you don't know for sure. But that's not unlike working in politics and local level you hear certain things. At the state level you hear, you, you see things from a different structure. You get on the national level and you begin to see things in another structure. And then you get up there into the White House and you're shown even higher level of how everything's run and then above that there are people that are globally doing the same thing and that they have an even bigger picture. Uh, there are natural levels in that but those levels are not God-made levels. Those levels are man-made levels. Those levels are secular levels and it's levels of deception and those people below you don't know what's really going on and you are at a level now where you've been given more power. Anybody that knows more than the person next to them has a higher level of power. And so you continue to desire to get higher up into that process, and that is Gnosticism. And the world works primarily under this desire for knowledge. And the person above you in the system knows what you don't know. And they use that knowledge against you. And this goes again back to the garden and the understanding that there is a stage where you should be content in everything you know. But when you take that extra step and you seek that more knowledge out there, you hunger for that one other thing out there so that you can be above it all, and you think that what it's going to do is give you a clear conscience, it's going to make everything work. Instead, what it does is it opens up another plateau and it shows you a darker reality and it takes you one step further away from God. Catholicism has those structures and so the higher up the leadership gets in the, the structure, the further away from God they get, but they tell you that they are holier, more sacred, they're cleaner, they're purer. Is it individual members in your Catholic Church community that you're hearing molesting children? Or is it the priests? Or is it the bishops, the archbishops? You can go back and look throughout the history, the 1700 years or so history of the Catholic Big C Church, and look at the popes throughout history, and you will find an amazing arraignment. I mean, I could spend a couple of hours going over just stories of the dark popes that we've had in our history. Popes that have literally dug up previous popes from their grave, put their carcasses on the podium, and have tried them for things, found them guilty, and then reburied them or burn them, or hang them, or whatever. These are corpses. But these are evil deeds. Okay, it's necromancy. Taken to a whole new level. Imagine hating someone so much that you dug up their body and put them on trial. 
it's there, folks. It's it's in the history. In fact, that particular event, the one particular event, the 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 Pope had been dug up. I think I think he went through at least three. There may have been more than that. But look up the Cadaver Synod, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. But that's research for you. And before I leave the whole ordination and the, the holy order areas of things, let me just mention that one of the things that is believed is that when a priest is finally ordained, it is at that moment they receive the gifts from the Holy Spirit, okay, and that enables them not only to, treat, to teach at the level of and the power of and the influence of Christ, uh, but to minister as Christ would minister, and to heal as Christ would heal, and to forgive as Christ would forgive. So the Catholic Church believes that when a priest goes through the Holy Order and they are ordained, they now have the power to heal and they have the power to forgive. And apparently they're supposed to become a great preacher too, along the time. Now, while we're talking about ordination or the Holy Order, it's important to understand that only a bishop who is appointed by the Pope, okay, along with guidance from local you know, leadership, but the Pope appoints all bishops, and then, all, then bishops appoint the deacons and the priests and other bishops. So you get fewer and fewer people involved, meaning their power is greater uh, in this structure. So the Pope and then the bishops, or this is their level, and everybody else falls underneath that. Um, they're all appointed by deacons, priests, and other bishops. are all appointed by bishops, and the bishops are appointed by the Pope. Okay, now we know that there is also the sacrament. Now this is considered part of the sacrament of services, the sacrament of matrimony. And uh, even though it is, uh, it's understood that Matrimony is supposed to only take place one time. You're supposed to have one marriage. It's supposed to be married to one man, to one woman, and there it is. And all modern religions, uh, in their overall structure, agree that that's the structure. Now, <clears throat> the Catholic Church really isn't any different than uh, other faiths have become when it, when it comes to giving in to certain things. They've given in to same sex. They've given in to all these different things that take place, and they've partaken in it. Not all areas, okay, but... It has infiltrated into the Catholic Church as it has elsewhere. But a Catholic wedding is supposed to be between two Catholic, okay, sanctified Catholic, gone through confession, had their baptism, so forth. It's supposed to be two, through two Catholics. Now, marriage can be, be between a Catholic and a non-Catholic, uh, but there are certain requirements that are necessary in the process as well. And, uh, and in reality, they really want... That the mar in order the, for the marriage to be seen as a Catholic marriage, it must take place under the Catholic structure. Okay, it must be under a particular mass that uh, structure that takes place. Again, there's a set of statements that are made, a, a order in which the service takes place. Uh, there's repetition of of scripture and and things of that nature that take place in the structure. And as far as divorce is concerned. There's really no divorce in Catholic Church, uh, not really. Uh, if you go and have a divorce, you know, within a, a civil service environment, uh, the Catholic Church still does not see that marriage as divorced until one of the members of that marriage passes away. Then that person is free to marry again. Uh, but really, once you're married, you're married for life under the Catholic Church. 
Um, that's just the way the structure goes. Now, the only exception in divorce that is accepted by the Catholic Church is this concept that, that it's possible that somebody from the very beginning did not fully commit, that they were untruthful in their commitment at the time of taking the vows. If they can indicate that one of the folks was uh, not being honest in their taking the sacrament of matrimony, then the divorce can be allowed, meaning that it's really not a divorce, really. It's that the marriage itself was never actually officially allowed. It never really occurred. The Catholic Mass has been performed basically within the same structure for around 1,700-1,800 years. It was officially set into a, a particular pattern by Justin Martyr, 155 A.D., and the Catholic Mass is, hands down, the ultimate ritual centerpiece of Catholicism. And we're going to touch on the details of it now. Okay, the basic structure of the Catholic Mass is based really off of two Jewish events. There is the Sabbath meal, okay, on Friday, uh, when bread and wine, okay, is blessed and shared. And then there's the synagogue uh, service, on Saturday mornings when the scripture okay, is read and reflected upon. So those two Jewish events in the Jewish temple are centerpiece moments within the Catholic Mass. Okay? There, is, uh, there was a Roman Missal, M-I-S-S-A-L, which is a set of practices okay, that were put together and you can tell by its name, the Roman Missal, that is a structure of prayer, scripture, and the gospel itself. And there, they, it got to, to be a point where they were set for certain days, certain events, certain time periods within the year, and so they're structured in there, and then it got so large that they even broke the gospels off into their own piece, and it became like these primers for how to conduct the Mass, and so it is a routine, okay, and it's referred to as the Roman Missal, okay, it's, it's one big body of work that is there. Um, it gives you all the directions for celebrating all the events that take place throughout the year, the events, the scheduled ceremonies that take place, hence my statement that it is a return to the Jewish tradition, because it's exactly what it is, it's a return to the festivals and feasts throughout the year that took place under the Jewish worship system. It's just the Romanized version of it under the guise of being Christian. Okay, now let's take a look. I'm going to show you some of the items that fall under the symbolism uh, that you will find typically within a Catholic church if you're not familiar with it. And so you'll see these items here. There are typically there are holy water fonts. Okay? Catholics, you know, dip their fingers into the vessels and they make the sign of the cross upon entering the sanctuary. Then there's the crucifix. Okay, you'll see some kind of a large cross with an image of the dying Christ affixed to it. Okay, this is always found near the altar. Then you have the altar itself. Okay, this is where the Eucharistic meal is consecrated and it's a fixed structure that represents Jesus Christ. It is the cornerstone of the church. There's the tabernacle. Now, this is the actual place where the consecrated hosts, 
meaning the wafers, are kept for prayer and to take to the sick and to the dying. There is what's called the presider's chair. Okay, this is where the priest sits. There's the lectern. Okay, this is where the scripture is read during the service and the homily is delivered. And you have the uh, sanctuary lamp. This is a candle next to the tabernacle that is continually lit to denote the presence of Christ in the blessed sacrament. And then, of course, there'll be missiles that will be within the pews. Okay, so those are your instruction books that you will find like you would find in a Protestant church with its hymnals. You would find the missiles in uh, the Catholic church. Now, other things that are usually quite present within a Catholic church, but it is not necessary for Mass, but they are part of the structure that you will find. Of course, there would be a number of statues. Uh, and the numbers and the styles of these statues vary depending on the church, but they are designed to offer images of important religious figures to the faithful. Okay, now this would be where I would refer to them as idols, but there they are. You will find Stations of the Cross. There are 14 sculptures or paintings that appear on the walls of the church, okay, that represent the path that Jesus took to the crucifixion. Okay, so these are known as the Stations of the Cross. Then you have the candles. Okay, these are small votive-sized candles that are used, usually placed you know, before the, the statues to encourage the faithful to light one in honor of the particular prayer that they're praying. If you're praying to a particular priest, I mean to a saint, you light a candle at the foot of that particular statue and so forth. Uh, oh, and by the way, you usually have to pay something for those candles. Then there's the reconciliation room. This is a small space in which you know, congregants will, can take advantage of the sacrament of reconciliation prior to the Mass, okay, or whenever the priest is available. In other words, it's a room you can go in and get renewed before you go to the service. And then there's the sacristy. The sacristy uh, is the backstage area of the church where supplies and vestments are kept for the celebrations. Um, it's not really obvious most of the time, but you will see members of the priesthood that will come back and forth from that area, and, and that's where it is. It's a supply area, a backstaging. Now, it's important to understand that there are always a set series of things that will take place. There will be a liturgy of the Word, there will be uh, a liturgy of uh, the Eucharist that will take place, there will be different events that happen throughout the structure. And again, I'm not here to try and give you an exact order of how Mass takes place. But there's, there's a set ritual of things that are said, certain things that are spoken, and it's based off of that missile that I referred to. And within the service of the Mass, the, the Mass itself, there is a communion section in the Mass as well. <clears throat> and uh, St. Pius X actually made the comment that communion is the uh, shortest and surest path to heaven. Perform communion during Mass, and it's the shortest and surest path to heaven. It would come to some great surprise to Jesus who said that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to my Father except through me. But apparently, according to Catholicism, if you take communion, 
during the Mass, it's the shortest and surest path to heaven. Okay, now we're going to move, now we're going to move into an area talking about heaven and hell and, uh, and some of the specifics of Catholicism. And, uh, and in, in that area of heaven and hell, it's very important that you understand their concepts of where you go or what each of the things are. I mean, you've got heaven, hell, and then, of course, you've got uh, purgatory, which people refer to. And there are people outside of Catholicism that use the term purgatory and think of purgatory, and uh, they, they're not aware that it's really just uniquely a, a Catholic thing, although there are other religions that believe that there's a, a midway point uh, a judgment area or whatever. Uh, it's important to clarify really off the bat that Catholicism does not focus very much on the last book of the New Testament. Um, and why would I bring that up now in the middle of heaven and hell? Well, we're talking about you know reward or punishment at the end of this life, and Revelation seems like the perfect thing to bring up at this point. And Catholicism does not focus much on Revelation. In fact, they see it as primarily just symbolism. Okay, they they it's it's poetic. Uh, in fact, there's an entire portion of Catholicism that sees it as merely an explanation of the events that were taking place um, at the time of the writing of it uh, by John, and that it is not to be taken any further than that. In other words, Revelation does not have any further purpose. Um, now, they would believe that, uh, that you come to the end of life, there is a judgment time, and that there will be a final judgment day, and so forth, but they don't look at it as revelation as being the big thing. They find most of it is just symbolic. The only thing they agree on is that there will be a final judgment time. Now, <clears throat> they would believe that those that have been judged are not judged again at that final judgment. They've already faced judgment because they, they died. They faced their judgment and wherever they go, they go. Um, but then there is also purgatory. Purgatory is like a, uh, it's like a detox station for Catholicism. And I, and I make light of it because it's ridiculous. But it's this concept that when you die, any remaining sin in you obviously can't go to heaven being sinful, and maybe you shouldn't automatically go to hell. Maybe your life hasn't been that bad. And so instead you have purgatory. You have this detox zone that takes place where you can, you can have one less opportunity to, uh, to fix everything. Okay? You've, you've led a fairly good life, but you, know, you, you have a little crust on the edge. Well, you go to purgatory and they'll, they'll get all that scraped off and polished off and you'll be good and you'll end up in heaven. Yeah. <clears throat> But it's also intended to be a place where maybe you are in good standing, but emotionally you weren't ready for heaven. You weren't ready to give up the things of, of earth. Uh, you weren't ready to die. You weren't ready to leave. And so you are made uh, emotionally ready for you to detach from the things here on earth. And so you spend time in purgatory until you're ready to fully accept that you've died and you're ready to go to heaven.
Okay, now when we move on into the concept of prayer in general, okay, that the Catholics do believe that, that prayer is a two-way communication. However, they still get stuck in their rituals and they still get stuck with these needs for things. I'm going to read this list off, okay, because these are the six litanies of prayer, okay? These are the approved recitations in the Catholic Church, okay? The litany of the holy name of Jesus, the litany of the sacred heart of Jesus, the litany of the most precious blood of Jesus, the litany of the Blessed Virgin Mary, also known as the litany of Noreno, the litany of St. Joseph, and the litany of the saints. Okay, now I'm going to throw this in there that you've got six, six, not seven, but six litanies of prayer, and three of them are about Mary, Joseph, or the saints. Three of these scripts, these prayer scripts, are not about God the Father, God the Son, even God the Holy Spirit. They are about human Mary, human Joseph, and human saints. Now, so that you understand, litanies are a series of repetitive petitions. And this is all going to lead into the rosary here in a moment. <clears throat> then, in order to help, help a man out, they came up with a book of common prayers. Okay, because maybe you just lost. Maybe you just don't know how to pray for a particular something. So let's thumb through the index of prayers that I can pray. And there are preconceived template prayers for you to pray, and it's called the common prayers. Um, and they've become what I refer to as the Catholics' uh, greatest hits of prayers. And there are even three manners in which a Catholic prays even those prayers. There are the vocal ones, there are the meditation ones, and then there are the contemplation ones. One of the best-known Catholic vocal prayers is the Novena. Okay? And it is a vocal prayer, sometimes invoking a saint that has prayed over an extended period of time and is usually connected to a specific intention. Now, I'm going to read this in particular. The Novena is prayed over an extended period of time, like I said. most common period is nine days. Okay, because the word Novena means nine. They are usually connected to a specific intention or need, and though they have been connected to miraculous events, it is important to note that a Novena is not a magic formula to make dreams come true. Rather, it is a way to channel our petitions into a cohesive prayer that can be recited over and over. Okay, that's also known as a mantra. Now, among the common prayers is a prayer, um, in fact, I'm going to list off the names of these prayers. These are the common Catholic prayers, the titles that are given. The first one is Our Father. Okay, now you'll know this one, Our Father who art in heaven, in heaven hallowed be thy name, and so forth. Okay, uh, also known as, you know, the Jesus prayer or, you know, things of that, or the model prayer. Then there's glory be, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. There is blessing before the meal. Again, these are set prayers, okay? Bless us, O Lord, and these thy gifts which we are about to receive from thy bounty through Christ our Lord. Amen. Then there's the prayer after meals. 
We give you thanks, Almighty God, for these and all thy gifts who live and reign forever. Amen. Then there's the guardian angel prayer. Angel of God, my guardian dear, to whom God's love commits me here, ever this day be at my side to light and guide and guard to rule and guide. Amen. Then there's the prayer, prayer to the Holy Spirit. Okay, and this one has a recitation back and forth. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. And then there's the verse, send forth your spirit and they shall be created. Then there's the response, and you shall renew the face of the earth. And then it goes on with, and O oh God, by the light of the Holy Spirit, you have taught the hearts of your faithful, and so on. There is the prayer for the deceased. Okay, now I'm not even going to read that one, but that, that's, again, it goes back to part one where I was talking about necromancy, prayer, praying to the deceased, praying to the dead. Okay, there is prayer to St. Michael. Now this has, a, this, this has a two-fold problem with it. You're praying to an angel. Okay? Um, and you're sainting an angel. Don't even know where to go with that. There's prayer of St. Francis. Again, praying to a dead man. Then there's a whole series of divine praises. There is, blessed be God, blessed be his holy name, blessed be Jesus Christ, true God and true man, blessed be the name of Jesus, blessed be his most sacred heart, blessed be his most precious blood, blessed be Jesus in the most holy sacrament of the altar, blessed be the Holy Spirit, the paraclete. And then I love these. Blessed be the great mother of God, Mary most holy, Blessed be her holy and immaculate conception. Blessed be her glorious assumption. Blessed be the name of Mary, virgin and mother. Blessed be St. Joseph, her most chaste spouse. And then, blessed be God in his angels and in his saints. And again, we're back to a list of praises and 50% of them are to other human beings, dead and gone. Repetition, repetition, repetition. The whole process is ritual. The idea is that everybody does exactly the same thing in the same pattern at the same time for the same reasons. Now, all of that having been introduced, the litany of the, of the prayers and the, the divine praises were given to you just now as a reminder, and I led you into this so that we now go into the big one, Mary and the Rosary. Now, so that you understand, uh, the whole issue with Mary, the Catholics would tell you, the Catholic priesthood would tell you that, no, they do not worship Mary, um, that they do not pray to Mary. They, they, they tell you this. They say this in writing, that they don't pray to Mary, they don't worship Mary, uh, although the symbolism tells you otherwise and the rituals tell you otherwise. Um, when you go into a Catholic church, you're going to find uh, a prominent statue, typically, is the, uh, a statue of a full-grown Mary, with a crown, and she's holding the infant Jesus. Uh, Jesus is seen as the infant, meaning the baby in the process, and that the Mary is seen as the one who is queened. Um, she is the centerpiece of the event, not unlike 
the uh, the reality that when you when you see a cross, a Catholic cross statue in um, a Catholic home or in a Catholic church, vast majority of the time you're going to find a recently crucified depiction of Jesus on the cross. So that when you kneel at that cross, you're kneeling at a cross that still has a crucified Christ on it. You are not looking at the cross as empty because he has been taken from there and he has paid for your sins. You're seeing a dead Christ. This is a vast, huge, major signal to my Catholic friends out there. The Catholic Church has you worshiping at a crucified cross, not a risen Savior. And they have you worshiping instead a glorified Mary. So you have a glorified human and a killed Savior. There's your symbolism above everything else, above all the gold and the stained glass and everything else that goes on. Those two images alone should make you question what's going on. You are, you see a prominent human figure and a dead Christ. That's what they worship. They want you communing with the dead, worshiping the mother, and kneeling before a dead Christ. Now to add to the hypocrisy of all of this, they believe that Mary had to have been free of original sin. Because their concept is, Mary had to be something special beyond just picked by God. Mary had to also be born without sin. And live without sin. So the belief is that she was, she was somehow sacred as well. Because in order for her to be the mother of God, she has to have been sacred. She had to have been holy. She had to have been different. Um, and so they do believe that she was born without original sin so that she could be spotless and blameless in order to carry Christ in her womb. Not only was Mary seen as born without original sin and, and spotless or blameless, but she was also believed to remain a virgin. Okay? Um, and that any reference in Scripture to Jesus' siblings had to have been from Joseph and a previous marriage 
or they weren't really siblings of his or whatever. There was some other situation. Uh, they were cousins or they were other family members or whatever. But they, they hold to this belief that Mary not only was born without sin, but that she remained a virgin even uh, at the point of delivery. Now there is a special song of praise that is known as the Magnificat that is basically a restating uh, of Luke 1, 46 through 55. And it's a song of praise okay, that uh, is referred to as Mary's Hymn, and uh, it is also known as the Magnificat. Again, this, this thing that Mary's faith somehow was extraordinary beyond all human abilities, uh, so it wasn't just that Christ was special, that Jesus was special, but that his mother had to have been um, of God or purely of God as well. Uh, now, one of the other statements that's made about Mary is that they claim that it's unclear whether, when, or whether Mary actually died. Um, the Catholic Church believes that when she reached the end of her earthly life, um, that Mary was somehow assumed up, body and soul, into heaven, and uh, that she was crowned at that point. Okay, so the belief is, is that she was taken up. Even though Scripture doesn't indicate anything to that nature, they just believe that that's what happened, that she was, she was taken up. She had to have been taken up. She couldn't have just died. Um, and that's when she was crowned queen. Okay, now I have to read this statement because I want to make sure it's very clear, because this is, this is an official statement about the myth of Mary worship. And it says that Catholics feel a strong connection to Mary because, in a sense, she is a mother to us all. Though she is not the source of Christ's divinity and is not worshipped as a goddess, she did give birth to Christianity. And is someone who can turn, and is someone we can turn to for comfort and support, just as D Jesus did when he was a child. The veneration of Mary is an important practice in Catholicism, but Catholics do not worship Mary as they do God. Catholics turn their intentions over to Mary, and ask that she bring those intentions to God. Okay, they pray through Mary, not to Mary. Now, I'm going to say this again. You pray through the Holy Spirit to God. The Holy Spirit is our intercessor. If you're going to communicate with God, you communicate through the Holy Spirit. And you can do it at any time because the Holy Spirit is with us at all times because Christ left the Holy Spirit with us at Pentecost. Open communication. You have no need to pray to a dead saint, to a dead family member, in hopes that they'll hear, oh, hey, you know, Joe said something. You know, Joe's got a prayer need. You may not have heard it. Jesus. Okay? You don't pray through a dead family member, you know, a.k.a. seen as a saint, and you don't pray through Mary to get to Christ either. You pray to the Holy Spirit. But, if the Catholics also believe that Mary didn't really die, she was just taken up, that would also kind of imply that if she never died, then she still has her earthly body, which was immaculate and virginal anyway. Seems kind of unnecessary for her to have her body. 
anyone. Mary is not the Holy Spirit. Now, there is also a belief that uh, Mary has appeared to people over the centuries. You know, it's not good enough that Mary, you know, was taken up. Uh, she has to have also to have appeared to people over the centuries. Ironically enough, I think it's interesting that it really wasn't until the 1500s that she began to appear to people. So she took about 1500 years um, and then thought, you know, I'm going to start appearing to people. Why not? And so uh, I've got to read these. Okay, you've got the Our Lady of Guadalupe. Uh, 1531, Mary appears to St. Juan Diego, okay, a farmer and a widower in the hills uh, in Mexico, okay? So you've got her, there's this appearance, and it was a belief that she somehow blessed uh, everything there, and so there's, there's a basilica there uh, with a statue of her there where she appeared and da-da-da. And then in France, in 1858, Mary appeared to uh, Bernadette, a uh, 14-year-old, uneducated girl, who, would, who supposedly wouldn't have had any knowledge or any way of knowing anything about uh, Mary or whatever. Um, so, of course, there's, you know, people take a pilgrimage to, 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 uh, to France. Then there's the uh, Our Lady of Fatima, which is in Portugal. Uh, and this was rather interesting because uh, this was in 1917. Mary appeared six times, okay, to uh, uh, Luisa dos Santos and her cousins, Jacinta and Francisco Marto, and uh, near Fatima, Portugal. It was during the height of World War I, and uh, during the first visitation, the lady asked the children to say the rosary every day and to meet her on the 13th day of each month until October. So from May 13th until October 13th of 1917, um, she appeared, Mary appeared each month on the 13th. All of this leads into the various prayers that need to be done, okay? And this explains where the rosary comes into the, the, the picture. Because you have uh, particular prayers. You have the Hail Mary, okay, which is not the football pass. It's an actual prayer. Hail Mary, full of grace. Full of grace. Now, this is, this is a belief that Mary was 100% filled with grace, meaning sinless. Okay? Then there's the... Uh, uh, memora, okay, which is a remembrance. Then there's the Hail Holy Queen. Okay, those three prayers are important now as we step into the Rosary. Now the Rosary first appears around the 12th century. Okay, you know, the the actual origin is very sketchy. We don't really know exactly when they came into play. Okay. Um, it was, it means, it comes from the Latin referring to a garland of roses. And um, it divides off a sequence of prayers that you, uh, that you relate. Okay? And uh, there's a prayer related to each section of the beads and, and so forth. And you'll see that in the image that I have on here. Um, the rosary, in their indication, is a scripture-based set 
of prayers, okay, that commemorate four sets of five specific events, okay, or mysteries in the life of Jesus and his mother. So it includes Mary in on this. Traditional set of rosary beads contains five decades, okay, meaning sets of ten, of beads in a circular fashion on which to say the Hail Mary and the intermediate beads on which to say the Our Father. Okay, and the five decades are connected to a medallion which has a shorter strand of five beads and a small crucifix hanging at its base. And again, you see all that in the image. Okay, and you literally make the sign of the cross with the crucifix. You recite the uh, Apostles' Creed. Okay, you say an Our Father while holding the first bead of the short strand. On the next three beads, you recite a Hail Mary on each bead for the virtues of faith, hope, and love, followed by a glory bead prayer. Then you introduce the first mystery and reflect on its significance. Then you say an Our Father, okay, and at this point you should be on the final bead of the short strand. For each decade, you say a Hail Mary for each of the beads. When all ten have been completed, you follow it with a glory bead. Okay, typically while touching the chain or rope between the last Hail Mary bead and the next Our Father bead. You introduce, introduce the next mystery and repeat you know, the last two steps until you work your way around the circle of beads. And then after all five decades have been completed, you say a Hail Holy Queen followed by a recitation. So around the 12th century, they not only wanted you, I mean, it, it, to, to recite and recite and recite things, that they got to the point where they created a system for you to carry with you, for you to recite even more, and know exactly how many times you've recited it. And so where the joke comes from, like, you know, say three Hail Marys or whatever, this is what it's referring to. Okay? It refers to Hail Marys and Glory Bees and Our Father and so forth. Recitation of prayers that become meaningless, particularly to the extent that you're reciting them on just this one set of beads. They have no meaning behind them after a while. They're just voiceless, careless words that are coming out there and being recited and they have no spiritual significance behind them whatsoever. It's just ritual. It's all it is. Now, this is a lot of content, and I know that. And I know this particular session was longer than the first part. And the truth is, there's more. I could do a third section on just Catholicism alone and, and stages of it. I could do one entirely on just the symbolism in and of itself. And I may do a shorter one that is literally just that, just showing you symbolism, uh, just images throughout the Catholic rituals. But the main point of what you've experienced with this is to show you Quite honestly, the lunacy of some of it, uh, the craziness of it. And if you're in the Catholic Church and you've seen this, you go, well, yeah, of course we do these things. The question that, that I wanted you to be able to ask yourself at some point in this was, wow, you know, when I look at it from the outside, why do I do this? Why is it done that way? Uh, why can't I just pray freely? Why can't I just read Scripture appropriately? Why is it that 
they have extra books or they have ritualistic repetition of pre-written prayers and, uh, and structures that have to happen in a certain way. Why does it have to happen that way? I don't see that in Scripture. I don't find where it's there. There is no prayer book for all that. Uh, and then you have to realize that it's not something that appeared in the church from the very beginning. It's something that, in some cases, like the rosary, didn't appear until the 12th century. You have rituals that are showing up four, five hundred, twelve hundred years after the disciples began to spread the word of the gospel. That right there should tell you that those are clearly not stages of Scripture and they're not part of what Christ was teaching. Okay? A revelation of that doesn't appear 1,200 years later. Christ doesn't tell you pray always in this way. Okay, the, 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 the Lord's Prayer or the model prayer that He gives at the Sermon on the Mount is intended to say, you need to pray in this manner. He is not saying you need to pray these exact words. At no point does he tell you you need to say things in a particular way, that you need to use this object to represent me. And, and the only place he does that is in the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the wine. And I don't see anybody carrying around loaves of bread saying that they're doing it as symbolism for Christ. The church isn't built on bread and wine. The church is built on gold and, and, and steeples and stained glass and an awful lot of wealth and an awful lot of statues and an awful lot of rituals. But they're not coming from the teachings of Jesus Christ. Now, if you want to continue to be a Catholic and follow under the Catholic traditions, then accept that it is... Jewish temple tradition that incorporates the nativity. Because beyond that, it really has nothing to do with Christ. It doesn't focus on his life. It doesn't focus on his ministry. It doesn't focus on his words. It focuses in on the mother and the rituals leading up to that time. It leaves Christ crucified on the cross. It leaves Mary sainted, crowned, queen, and immortal. And it has you speaking to the dead in hopes that the dead will take your prayers to the Lord. That's Catholicism. Judaism, dead and gone as a result of Christ's first coming. Catholicism, an attempt to resurrect Judaism with a Roman take. Neither one of them leads you to the Lord. There'll be more coming. I guarantee you I will give you more going forward explaining, well, if none of that works, where am I supposed to go? You go back into the Word. It's what you do. You go by what, the, what Jesus tells you in the New Testament. 
You understand that what he says in the New Testament is based off of the history of the events of the Old Testament, but you live your life based off of the New. Off the teachings that are given there, because that's, that's both Jesus' words and the words of those that he directly communicated to. And any generation past that, you can't take their word as sacred, and their word isn't Scripture, and their word is not what you are supposed to be focused on. Start with New Testament. Talking directly to the Lord, and where you're confused, you ask for His guidance. There is, there is a darkness to the world that you have to understand where it's coming from. And where you want to run to your faith for your answer, the faith that you're getting from the churches, from the temples, um, is wrong. It's misconstrued. It is uh, perverted over the centuries. And so in order for you to really truly come to understand what's happening in the world and be prepared for what's next in the world, you've got to escape the poisoning and detox from the things that you've been told even within your church community, even within your faith. And so these three videos have been intended to allow you to think about that, to take a good look at what your church or your, what your faith focuses on and ask yourself, is it scriptural? Is it leading you to God or is it leading you to ritual? Get rid of your rituals. Unless your ritual is to spend time with God. More later.